I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. We've got a very special episode this week. Autumn and I sat down for two interviews. Our first guest this week is going to be Hadar Suskin, who is the president and CEO of Americans for Peace Now. We talked to him about the current situation unfolding in Israel between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And then later on the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Leib Kaminsky. He is a works with nonprofit conservation organizations uh, across the country, especially uh, inspiring youth to get out into the environment and learn about it uh, so we can become more self-sustainable and we can take care of this earth that we have. So we've got a great uh, couple of interviews scheduled ahead, so stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. So Autumn, how are things going this week? You know, it's been an interesting week. We here on the U.S. soil, we are seeing sort of a ramp down in the pandemic. We've had some interesting guidance from leadership on what to do with our masks. And then, you know, you and I have both been watching the situation in Gaza and have really spent our week exploring both sides, which turns out we found out today not just both. There's, it's not binary. There are lots of voices in that struggle. <laughs> That's exactly right. This week, you and I attended a rally here in Oklahoma City uh, that was uh, put on by the Muslim youth of, or Islamic youth of Oklahoma in support of the Palest- uh, support Palestine is basically what the rally was called. Um, what was your take on it as you know, we experienced that on Tuesday night? Yeah, it was interesting. You know, growing up in a an evangelical home, definitely was very pro-Israel. And so it was interesting listening to the voices. They had, you know, it was multi-generational, 300 people were there, which in Oklahoma City is sort of unreal. Um, I was really moved, I think, by the the message that we are all, you know, brothers from the same father, father Abraham. And that was sort of driven home. And then you may want to talk more about this, but their angle about um, the the native element of things and then and what occupancy looks like and does to a native population over time. I thought that was just it made a lot of sense to my little American brain. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, the state of Israel uh, obviously began in this modern day uh, in 1948. Um, and prior to that, there were people who lived in the area, and they were called Palestinians, uh, along with many others. I don't want to just, sure. again, this is not, you know, not a binary situation. But, um, you know, they found themselves in an 
occupied situation with the Israeli government coming in and starting to govern that region. And so Palestinians were, you know, some of them were kicked out of the country. Others were relocated to settlements. And now it seems like bit by bit, the Israeli government uh, continues to take those settlements away uh, and replacing them with Israeli settlements. Um, And so some of the rhetoric that we heard this week uh, from the uh, Support Palestine rally was to equate what happened to the Palestinians as similar to what happened to the Native Americans here in this country, which is an interesting parallel. Um, But uh, I know that there are nuances in both of those situations. They're not exactly right. They're exactly alike, but uh, I certainly get the spirit in which uh, those were delivered. And then you and I got to sit down with Hadar Suskin, uh, who is the president CEO at Americans for Peace Now, which is a Jewish organization that is working for a two-state solution, and it was just really fascinating to hear from him as well, uh, hearing from his perspective as a Jewish man uh, who's working on policy for, for years and uh, is currently still still working on that policy and hoping for a two-state solution in the future. So uh, great experiences this week. Uh, if you're interested in seeing what happened at the rally, Adam and I uh, attended this week. Uh, you can go to goodfaithmedia.org and take a look at that news segment. It's on a video that's posted on the website. And then to hear from the Jewish perspective, uh, just stay tuned uh, on this podcast. You're going to be able to hear Hadar Suskin talk about this very uh, difficult and tragic issue right now unfolding in the Middle East. You know, something that I heard um, that was similar in both of the the situations that we attend both the the prayer vigil and then our our interview just now with Hadar is their hope is in the youth mm-hmm. and the vision that they have and i was so moved by the the young um muslim students who we talked to in oklahoma city and then listening to hadar talk about his son who's been in israel for the past year and um just exciting to see that there is some hope on the horizon mm-hmm. and that it looks so similar for both parties right you know, and I, I think that's you know, for those of us who are in the middle of thinking and writing and talking about everything that's going on in the world, it can become very overwhelming and it can become very depressing. And it's like we're not making any progress whatsoever. And uh, in the words of Dr. King, it seems as though that arc of the moral universe, while it may be bending towards justice, boy, we can't see the bend very well. And mm-hmm. so it, it can become discouraging. But like we've been saying here at Good Faith uh, Media uh, on our, our digital news and opinion, our within Nurturing Faith uh, journal, uh, our videos, what we're seeing is what gives us the most, most hope is the emerging generations behind us because they're the first ones to grow up in a completely globalized world where they're able to talk to one another. There is no border. There are no nation uh, states. Uh, they just leap right over them with technology. And they're, able to, they're able to talk to one another. And, you know, what's, what's fascinating to me is this idea um, is, is really an idea that was put into practice by President um, Eisenhower uh, during his presidency. Uh, when President Eisenhower was in office, obviously he was, you know, a, a general during World War II. And one of the things he wanted to do as president was to make certain that there were no more wars like that. Well, 
you know, obviously that was a failure. But what he instituted was an organization called People to People uh, that uh, high school students, middle school students travel around the world to experience different cultures and to talk to the, the people in those countries face to face. Because Eisenhower said when he founded People to People that if we could just learn to talk with one another and understand one another, then maybe we would stop hating one another and start bom- and stop bombing one another and killing one another. And that simple principle, I think, is still true today. Now, mm-hmm. we haven't been able to do that because of the social constructs that we have created in the political arena, the, the, the nation-state um, uh, system that we have in place. But because of technology now, those things don't exist. There are no yeah. borders. I mean, this, and this is the first generation that can just pretty much talk to who they want to anytime they want to. And it's been a lovely thing. They can talk to people face to face. Not, they're not in person, uh, but uh, they can certainly communicate with anybody they want to around the world. And it is a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Uh, we heard that at the rally uh, of Support Palestine this week. We heard it from Hadar Suskin and his uh, son who just got back from Israel. And I hope that you hear that continuously here at Good Faith Media. Well, stay tuned for our two interviews with Hadar Suskin and Labe. Kaminsky, they're both great as Labe talks about the importance of taking care of this planet. Because guess what, Autumn? It's the only one. That? It's the only one we have. It's the only one we have. <laughs> so we might as well take care of it. We might as well. That's right. So stay tuned. Discovering Wholeness is a new podcast from Good Faith Media for healing trauma, for unearthing self. Because trauma is so pervasive in our communities, it comes into our spiritual spaces, our churches. Mm. And I'm wondering how trauma is expressed in religious communities. My experience of of sitting in the, the pain, the shame, and the terror at times with some of the people that I have um, sat with that have experienced that judgment, but to the degree of those kinds of really strong words like abomination and you're going to hell. And it's so heart-wrenching. I'm Kendall Rothis, an author, feminist theologian, ordained minister, and spiritual director. Join me and my colleagues, Kendra Frazier and Jillian Drader, as we gather each week to discuss trauma and spirituality, to stay grounded as we heal ourselves and walk alongside those who are healing. Join us and learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we've got a very special guest with us uh, this week. Hadar Suskin is the president and CEO at Americans for Peace. APN's mission, as their website states, is to educate and persuade the American public and its leadership to support and adopt policies that will lead to comprehensive, durable Israeli-Palestinian and Israeli-Arab peace based on a two-state solution guaranteeing both people's security and consistent with U.S. national interest. Hadar, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch. It's a pleasure to be here with you. 
Well, Hadar, we have been witnessing over in Israel right now uh, an escalation of the conflict between Israel and Palestinians. Um, can you just uh, briefly explain to us how you would define what's going on there currently? Sure. You know, unfortunately, there's actually a multitude of related but different conflicts going on. You've got what's taken most of the, uh, certainly international attention, is really the conflict between the Israeli government and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. That's who's firing the rockets out of Gaza toward Israeli population centers, and that's who's being bombed by Israeli uh, warplanes, artillery, etc. Um, in addition to that, you've got really something new uh, going on within Israel and the, and the occupied West Bank as well. But you're seeing a conflict between Jewish and Muslim Arab citizens in Israel. We've seen rioting. We've seen violence from Jews targeting Arabs, Arabs targeting Jews in a way that is uh, deeply, deeply troubling. So there's multiple things that have been going on there. You know, part of the challenge with this conflict is that everybody wants to say the other side started it, and it's easy to prove it if you pick your date, mm -hmm. right? You can say, well, they started firing rockets, so we had to do this. Or, well, this was happening in Jerusalem. People were being evicted from their homes, so they did that. And people count back and count back day by day, week by week. And quickly, you find yourself in 1967 and in 1948 before that. And then eventually, somebody takes out the Quran and the Bible to start arguing. Sure, yeah. You know, and that's been interesting in, in the groups that we've talked uh, to recently. Uh, Autumn and I attended a Support Palestine rally this week here in Oklahoma City. Um, it's been interesting to hear the rhetoric, at least from the individuals uh, that we have been listening to and, and uh, visiting with, that they certainly make it uh, clear from their perspective, at least, they want to let people know this is not a religious argument uh, whatsoever, and this isn't a religious conflict. Uh, and they, they keep kind of beating that drum. Autumn, would you say that was accurate about the other day? Yes, and, you know, to, to be fair, um, this, this prayer vigil that we attended was put on by the, the Muslim youth of Oklahoma City. So there was a little bit different perspective, I think, being spoken then from what I've heard in the past. And they did really focus at, at that event on the fact that this was, to their understanding, not a religious conflict. And that was new to me. <laughs> so Hadar, yeah. would you say that? I mean, would you would you characterize these conflicts? Obviously, there's no way you can escape the religious component of it altogether. But what, kind of what educate us a little bit on what's going on here? Yeah, I, I think ultimately this is a political conflict. Now, what complicates it? One of the many things that complicate it is that for some of the people, whether they are Palestinian Muslim or Palestinian Christian or Jewish Israeli, their faith and religion impacts and influences the policy. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to completely separate them. But it's, but at its core, I, I don't. You know, I agree. I don't believe that this is a, a religious conflict at its core. The issue at hand is that you've got Israel. Um, which has been there now since 1948, and for now almost 54 years, since 1967, has been occupying the West Bank, um, the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem. And so you have Palestinians, generations of whom now have grown up under occupation. And that's the core issue. That's the core problem. That is the, the base level issue that leads to all of the other problems. Mm -hmm. 
from that, if you're talking about this most recent outbreak of violence, what specifically led to that was Israeli government policy that was evicting Palestinians from certain East Jerusalem neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, particularly Sheikh Jarrah is the name of the area where um, Jewish Israeli settlers have, under the protection of the Israeli government, um, been slowly taking over this neighborhood and evicting Palestinians under laws that have been passed. So what they are doing is not, uh, in the most part, illegal under Israeli law, but they are frankly um, doing so under an unjust law. And so you have people who've lived in these homes for generations who are being evicted. That led to increased uh, upset and, and um, some some violence in Jerusalem. Um, it also was the holy month of Ramadan when you have many, many, many Muslims coming from around the country to go to Jerusalem, to go to the Al-Aqsa Mosque for prayers. Um, and that led to increased tensions, including Israeli military police going into the mosque, which they are under the agreements not supposed to do. And there were uh, flashbang gr- grenades, smoke grenades, other violence and attacks in, in and around the mosque. And that is what then led Hamas in, in the Gaza Strip to um, declare that they were getting involved and they were going to start the rocket attacks um, and because of that. So you've got a series of things that aren't necessarily explicitly one connected to the other. Hamas was not Hamas and Gaza specifically was not under Israeli military attack, and they were responding to the to the upset in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. But again, you can go back. 2014 was the last time we saw a large scale military uh, event like this, and you know the, the the tensions and the problems build one on another. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what are the what are the reasons behind the Israeli government? Uh, seizing these lands. You said there were laws passed, and then they were enacting those laws uh, in these occupied lands. So what's what's the purpose of it? Because you look at a map and you see uh, the Israeli uh, government seems re- taking a lot of these, these lands from these uh, Palestinians who have lived there for generations, as you said. Right. So again, you know, you, you got to define when you want to start talking about. So you go back to um, 1967, which is the, the Six-Day War, and Israel uh, conquered the, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, um, from the Jordanians, Golan from the Syrians, um, and has since occupied that land. They've annexed the Golan. Um, Israel has also annexed East Jerusalem, although, again, most nations in the world don't recognize that. The West Bank and Gaza Strip are occupied territory. And you know, successive governments over the years have dealt with that in a variety of ways. But frankly, every government since then has encouraged Israeli settlement growth, has encouraged the building of new communities for Jewish Israelis uh, in the West Bank. And they've done so with a political intention behind that. And that intention varied a little bit government to government. There are some, including Netanyahu and the, the current Israeli administration, that have done so because they've explicitly said, we're not going to leave this territory. We're, we're keeping this. This is going to be Israel. There are others, um, more left-wing governments led by Barak or Yitzhak Rabin before him, who also encouraged settlements, but did so as part, um, at least the way they talked about it, as part of you know recognizing that it would ultimately be negotiated. Some of those settlements would have to leave, just like Israeli settlements left the Sinai when Israel made peace with Egypt. Um, so the government has been continuing to do that. This particular government, which is, I think, by all accounts, the most right-wing Israeli government we've ever had, has intensively pushed settlement growth and has been clear that they don't intend to 
reach a two-state solution. They talked last summer about annexing that territory and making it permanently Israel, which our organization uh, was adamantly opposed to. Most American Jews were adamantly opposed to. Um, and thankfully, they ultimately did not go ahead with that. You know, specifically what was going on in East Jerusalem recently, and I say recently in that it led to this recent round of conflict, it's also been going on for a long time, is sort of a smaller scale. It's literally house by house of these right-wing, generally speaking, their religious settlers taking over these houses as they are trying to do to Jerusalem what we just talked about, about the West Bank and the whole land, mm -hmm. which is to make the reality on the ground such that you can't reach a two-state solution, that you can't um, disentangle the Jewish areas and the Palestinian and Arab areas. And so they've gone into neighborhoods in East Jerusalem that are traditionally Arab, and in some cases they've bought houses, in some cases the government has used a process pretty similar to eminent domain, um, and they've used these laws that, you know, go back to talking about, you know, if there was Jewish ownership of some of this territory, some of these houses before 1948, before the Jordanians captured that, then basically descendants of those people or anyone who they pass that right onto can claim those houses and claim those even if a Palestinian Arab family has been living there since 1948, or in some cases longer. So there's legal complications, um, but it, clearly the politics is, um, you know, is uh, overriding the legal here. This, this is not, as some would like you to think, you know, a real estate dispute, and you just need a good sure. lawyer to figure yeah. it out. This and is a also, process. from what I understand, and from what I've been reading, is that uh, Netanyahu has, or Netanyahu has, been unable to form a government uh, recently which has caused instability. And again, from my perspective, Benjamin Netanyahu seems to be the equivalent of Donald Trump in this country uh, as someone pushing that far-right agenda uh, and kind of a, a totalitarian type of mindset uh, in his, uh, his leadership and governorship. Uh, I can remember listening uh, to a speech given by former Secretary of State for the Reagan administration, Jim Baker, and said, Baker said at one time uh, Netanyahu was the only person that he ever banned from the State Department while he was Secretary of State. Uh, <laughs> coming from a coming from a you know Secretary of State under the Reagan administration, I said, "Wow, that's pretty." Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you? And I guess. I think we, you know, we've identified the issue, you know, there's certainly a lot of, this is such a nuanced situation. Your organization, Americans for Peace Now, is really doing some good work in trying to find a solution to move this forward within a two-state solution. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the work of Americans for Peace Now? and Because and, I think it does give us some hope for the future, even though it's pretty dark right now. Well, it is dark, but um, you know, I, I continue to have hope. And thank you again for, for highlighting this and for asking me to come talk about it. You know, Americans for Peace Now, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. And we actually um, have a sister organization, Peace Now, in Israel that began a few years before that and was started by a group of Israeli military officers in 1978 who came together and said, we need a different path. You know, Israel at that point had been through the War of Independence in 48, Sinai War in the 50s, Six-Day War in the 60s, the Yom Kippur War in the early 70s. Every few years was a large-scale war there. And these military officers came together and said, we need 
to pursue diplomacy, we need to pursue peace. And that was really the beginning of the peace movement in Israel. And our organization came into existence to help support that and to be that voice here in the United States to organize, particularly American Jewish community, but also many others who are part of our work here, um, to push for a peaceful negotiated solution. And you know, we've always stood for two states. We believe that you know, a, a safe, secure Israel next to a safe, secure, independent, viable Palestinian state is really the only, um, you know, the best possible option. There are other people out there who talk about other options. You could have a confederation of two states. You could have a one-state solution that doesn't necessarily have a, a Jewish or Arab character to it. Look, there there are a variety of, of options, and there are a variety of ways. I certainly deeply believe that a two-state solution is the best, most viable, positive option. Because unfortunately, we've seen other we've seen a one-state solution come close when Prime Minister Netanyahu talked about annexing the West Bank. But that would not be a good one-state solution. That would be a one-state solution um, that, frankly, would have you know different would have second-class citizens in it and people. I'm not just talking about discrimination. I'm talking about people literally with different levels of political rights, and that's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And you know, to me. The hope comes from realizing not only the work that we're doing here in the United States, but the fact that we are the parallel of a movement that's taking place in Israel. And just mm-hmm. like you know, people from around the world looked at the U.S. Um, during the previous presidency and said, "Oh my God, what what's happened to America? It's all so terrible." Understandably, um, you know, I think it's easy to look at Israel and say Israel is doing this. Israel is so right wing, um, but it's important to know that. You know, like the United States, Israel has political diversity. Um, right. In some ways, a great deal more political diversity because it's a parliamentary system. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, that instability that you mentioned comes from the fact that they've now had four elections in the past two years. Um, Netanyahu has remained prime minister through that time. He has not, however, had really a conclusive victory. He has not been able in this last election to form a new coalition. Uh, there are a lot of people out there saying, frankly, that. You know the violence or the extended continuation of this violence right now um, is you know that he's pushing that for his political purposes. That it is um, keeping an opposing coalition from being formed. Mm-hmm. You know I can't speak to whether he is or is not doing that, but it is true that before the rockets and bombs started flying, all the reports indicated that there was going to be a different coalition led by somebody else formed, and that is now not clear. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's really important, though, to to know that in Israel, on the political level, on the individual level, you know, the, there's a lot of political diversity there, and there are a lot of people that want to see this conflict come to an end, that want to see a two-state solution, that want to see a peaceful, more equitable society there. That is such an important point that you made, and something that I have not considered. Um, I know I felt like sort of like a woman without a country from 2016 through 2020, and um, you know, have friends around the world who are like, um, what are y'all doing over there? And, you know, raising my little purple flag here in very red Oklahoma saying, not me, not me. And so I think that's so important to remember that there are a lot of different voices in Israel who likely want a very similar situation to the people just right across the line from them. And among the Palestinians as well, right? Yes, yes. That was pointed out at the vigil. They're like, in Palestine, we have Christians, we have Jews, we have, you know, all kinds of people who believe all different kinds of things. We just want peace. And that was what the prayer vigil was about. Yeah. And part of the challenge right now is that we're not looking at a binary situation where you have Israel and Palestine Mm -hmm. relating to each other. First of all, they're not equal, right? The power balance is not equal. Palestine is not at the moment a sovereign nation. 
They don't have that political power. They certainly don't have that military power, but they also don't have unity there. So the actual violence, the bombing, the rockets is coming from Hamas and Islamic Jihad who are entrenched in the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian leadership that the United States and Israel engage with is the Palestinian Authority, which is in the West Bank, which is not connected to Hamas. They're different people. Both the Israeli government and the American government do not directly speak to Hamas or Islamic Jihad, but they're on the rightly on the terror list. So the United States government doesn't engage with them. So you know you you can't accurately say, well, Israel's doing X and the Palestinians are doing Y, because who are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Thank you for pointing that out. It's like the old uh, African uh, proverb, when the elephants fight, it's the ground that suffers. And in this instance, when Mm -hmm. nation states start firing missiles at one another and organizations start firing missiles back, it's the people who suffer. And we see that on television and read about it in the newspaper each and every day. Uh, Well, Hadar, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Uh, The organization that Hadar leads is... Americans, or uh, yeah, Americans Peace for Peace Now. Uh, and you can find more information about them at peacenow.org. And they also have a podcast, PeaceCast, uh, that you can sign up oh, uh, or that. subscribe to on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, it looks like it's a fabulous podcast, so make certain you check it out. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, being with us today. Uh, we ask a final question of all of our guests to uh, come on the pod, and Autumn always has the pleasure of asking it. So, Autumn? That's right. Our tagline at Good Faith Media is, there's more to tell. And in light of everything we've talked about today, I'm so glad that there is. So, do you have a word for our listeners? You know, my son came home from Israel yesterday. He just finished spending a year there. And listening to him talk about his experience and the people he met, and their diverse political views, and Israelis and Palestinians, and listening to Palestinians, particularly the youth, like you were talking about, Autumn, in Gaza and in the West Bank and throughout Israel, um, just makes it clear that there's a lot more. There's always more to learn about what's going on, what's happening this week, but also the history of Israel, the history of Palestine and the Palestinian people. So I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and share a little bit more with you. Thanks. But our Suskin, thank you so much for joining us this week, and all of us are praying for peace. I know that Americans for Peace now issued a press release this week calling for a ceasefire, and we are all hoping for such. So thank you, sir. Uh, Stay tuned for our next segment. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this week's episode, we've got a very special guest with us, Leib Kaminsky. Leib works with nonprofit conservation organizations and Jewish social justice groups, assisting them in building partnerships in the community. He received his BA from the University of Pennsylvania Environmental Sciences, a master's degree in environmental education from the University of Michigan, and has worked with urban youth in the outdoors for more than 30 years. In his free time, he tutors first graders, God help him, in reading, plays competitive volleyball across the country and is an all-around great guy. Labe, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Uh, thank you very much, Mitch and Autumn. We are so thankful that you're here. Um, over the last year, which is as long as we've been in existence, we have been asking <laughs> our guests about their health and how they're feeling since we are in a pandemic. Um, and so now we thankfully can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we've started asking our guests what they're most looking forward to now that the country is starting to open back up and we're getting a handle on this virus. So what are you most looking forward to? 
Um, I'm most looking forward to doing things with other people uh, where I can see their faces. Um, it's really hard. I've been taking a lot of walks by myself um, during the pandemic, and now I'm hoping to add some more people and to really be able to continue exploring nature and my surroundings and my neighborhood, which I've actually gotten to know because of COVID. Um, I would never have known that there's a family of deer just around the corner, uh, <laughs> except for the fact that I'm sitting in my house every day looking out the window and they just walk by one day. It's like, ooh, how exciting. So yes. I'm really, but I'm looking forward to sharing these experiences with other people. So just sharing is what I'm really looking forward to most. Yes. Yeah, I love that. You know, like you mentioned, uh, you know, we've talked about what you're looking forward to. Obviously, we are hopefully on the other side of the pandemic. A lot of good news uh, coming across the country right now. Uh, unfortunately, still some hot spots globally, such as India. But as an environmentalist, uh, with someone with multiple degrees in environmental science, uh, I want to ask you this question because it just it just kind of popped into my mind. Um, these viruses that are emerging that are so potent these days, and, and I know that this, is, this isn't happening in a, in a historical vacuum, it's happened throughout history, but it seems as though they're becoming more potent, uh, more susceptible to transmission. Is there any connection to what's going on in the environment with uh, you know, kind of some infectious diseases that we're seeing emerge? Sure. Um... I, I will say, I mean, I'm, I'm knowledgeable in the field, and but I'm no expert. I'm not a doctor. I, you know, I'm not a scientist in that way of doing experimentation. But I definitely see as our environment changes, and as we are man, or people, kind are changing that environment, that things are going to change. And so, if we control one thing, it's like a cause and effect. Mm -hmm. It's um. I don't know if I can, I'll quote pop culture. There was a Simpson episode where Homer Simpson goes back in time and accidentally sees a mosquito and steps on it. And then, you know, 10,000 years later, the whole planet is different. So things are constantly changing, constantly evolving. And, and we have the concept of mother nature. And when we start tinkering with mother nature, she's going to tinker back. Um, things are going to have a cause and effect and a reaction. So I think in the big picture of environment, you know, as we change our environment, as we add more chemicals and toxins and, and air pollution and all the different pollutions you can think about and, you know, using fossil fuels and all these things that are changing, something has to happen. Mm -hmm. And so Mother Nature is going to change things because the goal of Mother Nature is to survive. So when, and, and I am now quoting Tom Friedman um, from the New York Times, he said, as, as Mother Nature, you can't beat Mother Nature. She is always going to win. She's going to figure out a way how to get around things. So as we are changing the environment, the environment is trying to change us back. So it's pretty obvious that we're going to have these uh, new viruses or new epidemics or new things that are going to come through because we are tinkering with it so much. Mm. Yeah, Christian theologian, uh, German theologian Joram Maltman talks about, uh, you know, as a person of faith who believes that the world is a created being, and what he means by that, that the world, the earth, is a living uh, organism. 
And because it's a living organism, when it is attacked, it does what living organisms do. It reacts to that attack. And so, <laughs> and so what we're seeing with, uh, you know, climate change and weather patterns and the strengthening of hurricanes and storm systems, uh, that's Mother's Nature using her tools to, to fight against whatever's attacking her. And so it's, you know, I, I love what you just said. I mean, I just want to affirm that uh, in many different ways. Now, you recently wrote a brilliant article for us at goodfaithmedia.org. Uh, it was during the emphasis on Earth Day uh, last month. It was entitled, How Earth Day Aligns with Jewish Values. You are a Jewish man, first of all. Kudos for using the Muppets as an illustration to highlight Earth Day. Well done, sir. We all applauded you uh, at Good Faith Media. Uh, but second, you spoke about in the article, and you were really honest about it, how excited you were to be able to apply your Jewish faith and see how it complemented your passion for environmentalism. So could you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I mean, I was in, started, I mean, I've always been Jewish, so that's always there. Um, but I studied the environment in, in college and in grad school and um, have been working professionally in it. Uh, but then early on, it sort of was, there was some similarities of, oh, you know, I'm praying using this prayer book. And look, these prayers are actually talking about the environment, that there are things quoted in, in the Bible that are really environmental and sort of values that I've lived every day. One of the ones, not in the article, but one that I think about a lot is there's a passage that talks about when you come upon um, a mother and her eggs, a bird, a mother bird and her eggs, that you can take one but not the other. And immediately I'm like, well, that's just preventing extinction. Like God had a plan and God is telling us, you know, this is the plan, this is what you need to do. And I'm like, oh, well, that's what I'm doing in the environment every day when I'm teaching young people about the environment, why to do conservation. It's like, well, it was a plan that was kind of set up for us. So when I was able to combine the two, and I worked at my synagogue doing a confirmation class, getting young people sort of engaged, I was able to make those connections so that I could bring my environment, which would be considered from the outside, into the inside of the religion. And at the same time, you take what's inside the religion, and I can bring it outside to the environment mm. so that there are people who are really knowledgeable and really do understand the Bible. And now they can really understand the concepts of sustainability. They can understand the concepts of climate change because it's what they've been talking about all along. And I don't remember, Mitch, the guy you quoted, but I mean, mm -hmm. I really resonated with that quote in that it is that, you know, that the earth is set up to, to be self-sustaining, but you, but you have to keep it in balance. Mm -hmm. The reasons that, um, hurricanes are happening more often. There are reasons that we're having temperature extremes. You know, it's not, you know, necessarily global warming, global cooling. It doesn't matter. What, what matters is the changes. And I think what, what a lot of the Bible or religion tries to do is it tries to keep us from changing those major things to keep us on a, a path, you know, to what I would call sustainability. So that when you talk about the Shemitah, which is the idea of letting your land lay fallow, it's there. It's telling us we need to be thinking about this, and it's good environmental practice 
And it's actually from the Bible because we've been doing it for thousands of years. We've been letting our land lie fallow to just rest because all those nutrients need to come back into the soil. They need to come back so that we can grow our food and we can be sustainable. Um, the Jewish holidays I also mentioned are based on agriculture. There's a time for the harvest. We just had a holiday called Shavuot, which ended yesterday, where you bring your first fruits uh, they did in, in ancient Jerusalem to the temple because they were so grateful about, you know, here, here's our harvest and we're sharing it sort of with the people, almost like, you know, sharing it with the priests, sharing it with the poor. This is the, this is the time to do it. So you have Shavuot, you have Sukkot, which is the harvest festival. You have Passover, which is also the original planting. So it's all based on agriculture, which to me is really all based on the earth and how we care for the earth. So adding that time to let the earth rest, uh, giving us a chance to not cause extinction um, are really ways that I can pull all those things together and was able to kind of combine the two. And, and it really helps motivate me as well. Yeah. well. The article was very well done and we appreciate you contributing to that series. So in the article you write, Judaism is based on the values of learning. The Bible is read year after year, and each time readers are encouraged to look at new ways to view passages in the context of our ever-changing world. So for those who believe in climate change and that humans are the prime reason for it, what do you suggest we can do to educate some of our friends and family who still do not think this is a problem? Right. Well, there's certain quotes and passages that, that you can look at. And, and every year you can kind of read well, what, we, what, what Judaism does is they read it and then you can discuss it and read it differently. So this year, you might not necessarily agree with it. But if you talked about it again next year and looked at it from different things or different, um, you know, things that are happening with the climate, different things that are happening to our environment, and, and you can prepare them um, to better understand them. Again, there, there are quotes, there's, there's a couple books out there that, I mean, we can talk about, but that talk about like really looking at the Bible from an environmental perspective. You can take that with the people who don't necessarily understand and say, well, here, here's the quote, just like I talked about the mother and, and, and the eggs, the bird and the eggs. And you can really look at it. And, you know, the first time you read it, you're just like, oh, well, you know, you just don't want to be cruel, which is often is quoted as a cruelty, like a lot of the animal cruelty groups would say that. Um, but then you can look at it as, well, it's not just cruelty, but the next time you look at it, you could talk about it as, as more sustainable, that if you kill both, then there'd be, they'd be gone. So let's keep one and see what does that mean? And what would happen if you took the eggs one year, but you took the mother the next year? Would she lay her eggs the next year? Maybe it's not so simple after all. And so if you can kind of tease it out and look at the different you know, perspectives of the one little quote that you're taking, um, you really can, can generate a discussion. And so I think that, that non-believers out there, um, you know, you have to bring it close to home. And here's one that I think all the viewers and everyone will understand is mosquitoes. We love those mosquitoes, don't we? Poor Homer, he got rid of it and that was the end of the problem. But mosquitoes have, you know, they have a part in here. But wait, know, wait, wait a minute, I want to stop you. Are you about to make me sympathetic towards mosquitoes? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. No, no, you're still, gonna, you're still not going to like them. But I thought you were going to paint this picture of a mosquito family going out for a picnic and you're destroying. Right. No, no, but, but right. But when you used to think of mosquitoes, you used to think of going out into the picnic, going out into the woods, hiking, mm -hmm. camping, mosquitoes. Now you go out on any urban street in any major city and there are mosquitoes everywhere. 
Why? Well, mosquitoes like carbon dioxide. They like the fossil fuels that we're burning. And if you, and, and they did then, some students have done some studies, I've worked with different student groups, and they've done some studies, and they found that there are more mosquitoes along our highways than there are away from the highways. And there are more mosquitoes closer to roads than away from roads. And, and so these were just some students, so we're not, all the science isn't there, but, but the idea was is students were starting to see more mosquitoes closer to home because they love the carbon dioxide and they're going to thrive in that area. You know, same can be true for some of the invasive plants mm -hmm. as well. And they're starting to find that you're finding poison ivy and, and, and poison oak in areas that you weren't finding them before because we're disturbing areas. So now not necessarily the carbon, but now it's disturbing. And that the poison ivy likes to be along trails. Like it's not just a coincidence, but you clear a space, they get more sun. Oh, you know, they're going to thrive. And so now you have some negative things that people can understand. No one likes mosquitoes. No one likes poison ivy or poison oak. And those are increasing because we are altering or changing. And I think that's the point of climate change is that there is a change and not all change is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, there are some beneficial changes, just like with COVID and the virus, families were stuck inside more and developed stronger bonds. You know, people got to know their immediate people better. People reached out and learned new technology. So there are some benefits to bad things, but they're usually bad. But so I'll, I'll throw mosquitoes out there <laughs> is that example of if you don't believe in climate change, you go sit outside in your backyard right now and tell me you're not going to get all bitten up. But I'm telling you, 20, 30 years ago, when I would sit out as a kid in my backyard, I never was bitten by mosquitoes in my own backyard. You had to go camping. You had to go find those mosquitoes to suck your blood, you know? So. <laughs> we have a, a, a sector of folks in the Christian faith who are very anti-environmentalism. Um, the whole, you know, love the creator, not the creation, that kind of situation. Does the same exist in Judaism? Forgive my, like, my stupidity. I just don't know. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm not, again, 100% sure of the excerpt, but I've seen sort of, you know, that, the environment is really being, and what you think about it is right, right now being driven a lot by politics. Mm -hmm. And the more conservative you tend to be, the more anti-climate change you are. But that wasn't true in the very beginning. I think a lot of the evangelicals were pro-climate change. You know, until it became a political issue, I think, and, and, and in Judaism as well, that the more orthodox tended to understand that you, you know, needed to follow these rules that, that God had laid out in, in creationism as being protectors, but we needed to take a role in it as well. And again, as we manipulate a cause and effect, something's going to happen. Yeah. So I think early on in climate change ideology, the conservative or the evangelicals were very pro climate change and understood it and did not want it to be changed. It just became politicized. Mm -hmm. And so I see a lot of efforts being, you know, um, in, in the Orthodox Jewish community, uh, curriculums being created to really talk about the environment, how it relates to religion. And that's one way to reach those groups of people. Yeah. So I don't think evangelicals have always been against it. I think it just became something in the past half decade. And like, that's such an important point because uh, we're friends with the chief climatologist here in the state of Oklahoma, and he would often tell us he would go out to these communities and tell them 
and simply state facts that the, the climate's changing. He would not give a reason for the climate changing. He would just say, it's changing. And they would not believe him. And they'd say, show us evidence. And he would say, well, I work at the National Weather Service here in Norman, Oklahoma, and we send, out a, send up a weather balloon every day. And we take the temperature of the atmosphere. And here's what I'm telling you. We've been doing this for decades. And the temperature is increasing. <laughs> and they just they won't believe it. It seems as though uh, this politicization, or politicization of uh, of science, they, they've pitted science against faith. And that's why yeah. I think it's so important for individuals like yourself and others. Uh, we've had an epidemiologist uh, on the show before where scientists and doctors who are people of faith are working in this field because there's this misconception that science uh, is just totally an anti-religion. And that's not the case at all. There's these incredible people of faith working within the industry who, uh, can, who don't separate their faith and science. It's not mutually exclusive. It's, it's part of who they are, and, and they work together nicely. Right. And I think... When you look at environmental issues, it's really important to look at sort of four main things, Not and, and, and religion does fall in there, but you have to look at the sort of the science or the, the, the environment part of it, but you also have to look at the politics of it, mm -hmm. and you have to look at the social interactions. So you have the social interactions, politics, science, um, and then there's a fourth element, and it just escaped me, but I'm going to get it. Hopefully we can get this out. Yeah. Um, so there, there's politics, social, science. Oh, and economic. How could I have forgotten yeah, economics? Economics, absolutely. Economics is driving what's going on. And yes, economics and politics are going to be done, you know, in there. And religion falls, I think, more in the social part. Mm -hmm. But you have economics that are driving it. So you really have to balance every environmental condition, everything you look at, every project you want to do. You have to look at those four elements. And again, I'll put religion in the social element. Maybe it could sure. it, it, it goes between some of them. So we can call it religion. But you have to look at those four elements as they're interacting, as they're impacting our environment when you're trying to figure out a solution. So a solution, you know, might not be just driven economically mm -hmm. or politically or religious or socially, or we'll call it environmentally. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to really balance those four. And right now the balance is out of whack because you have the politics and the social and the economic all in one little pile. Mm -hmm. And no one can kind of tease them apart. So now it's like three against one against the environment. <laughs> when it used to be four e equal parts kind of working um, synonymously with each other. Sure. And that's a, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought up the economic component of it because uh, just recently uh, GM Ford uh, announced that uh, you know they're switching to electric cars over a period of time. Who would have thought that would come out of Detroit 20, 30 years ago? Uh, but here they are because they are starting to see the economic advantages for them to go green. And so once it became economically advantage or advantage for them, that's 
they begin to pursue it. I'm not saying they didn't ever care about the environment. Uh, I'm just saying, uh, you they have a business to run. And all of a sudden now they're seeing that going green can be uh, profitable for their businesses. So uh, that's very well said. Well, let's switch gears here for a second. Um, You have been working for decades with young adults concerned about the environment. Now, one of the programs you work for or work with is called Mobilize Green. So can you tell us a little bit about these programs and why why you feel that this work is so vital for the future. Right. Well, I, um, Mobilize Green works with young people, um, providing them with opportunities to advance their career and environment. Uh, we focus on um, sort of uh, disadvantaged groups um, or, or um, groups that aren't traditionally, and when I say disadvantaged, I mean many different things, but not really involved and engaged in the environmental field. So we're trying to get them more engaged. And we do this by providing internships. And those internships help young people get that sort of day-to-day knowledge about the environment, and that's creating our future workforce. So when, you're, when, I, when I've been in, in my past working with young people, um, really looking at sort of their future and not only their careers, but I want to engage them in the environment. So they can do one of these internships that they might be, end up being a doctor or they might end up working for a corporation, but they have that green background. Mm-hmm. And so the groups that I've worked with have really focused on sort of high school and college students, getting them engaged so that they not only can go into their careers, but they also have that background, that knowledge that they can bring into the field, into what they're doing. And so where do they, where can these students find out more about the program? Sure. Um, well, Mobilize Green has a website, mobilizegreenalloneword.org. But there are other organizations out there that are doing work uh, with young people in the environment. Um, another one I work for is called Why Laces Youth Learning as Citizen Environmental Scientists and that's ylaces.org. And they actually give out grants to help young people um, do their own scientific exploration. We are creating citizen scientists so that they can go out and they can do those mosquito studies like I spoke about before, <laughs> or they can do water quality or air quality, and they can see for themselves from the data, from the scientific data that they're gathering, is there a change? Um, a lot of students are, are working with weather stations, so your climatologist, and they're putting weather stations on the roofs of their schools, and they can even see, um, you know, you can see the difference in it by actually exploring, by actually walking the school grounds or, you know, collecting the rainwater or, or looking at the, the air temperature or the wind speeds. All those things are how young people can co- become more engaged and understand this changing environment around them. And again, change is always happening. It's nothing new. It's just the rapidness of the current change is causing things just to get off kilter a bit. And what I like about these programs that you told me earlier is that some of them are really uh, con- consciously looking towards um, uh, recruiting minority students, Native American students, uh, yes. uh, students of color, LGBTQ uh, students, and re- I mean, the, this this opportunity is for all students. Uh, correct, correct. Mobilize Green really looks at the different groups of people and then um, works with them to create programs and different trainings. So uh, different um, minority groups are having troubles entering the environmental field. 
because there's difference in culture. Remember, we talked about that sort of socialness of it and the economics. So we have the economic factors, we have the social factors, and you know, we have the environmental factors that are really putting up some barriers to young people getting engaged in this field. And Mobilize Green is really helping to remove those barriers. That could be through possibly a mentorship program so that people can see people who are like them who are already in these careers and learn from them. Um, it can remove barriers such as um, for income that Mobilize Green does offer stipends and they offer higher stipends so that people who, who come from um, lower income areas uh, can, can actually do an internship and still sustain because there's housing and there's other things that are also engaged in the program that we provide in the program. And that can really um, help young people move forward. Now, is this for high school students, college students, grad school? Uh, we have a high school program. We actually have a high school program right now. There's still applications. Oh, good. Uh, we actually have a virtual program where you're going to be working in a park or forest and on online for now because of COVID. But we also have in-person programs for high school students. And then we have internships, three months, six months, and one year internships for college age students and even graduates. Because once you graduate, um, we have some entry level positions that can help you actually find a career or job with the Forest Service. Excellent. Well, you hear it uh, here, kids. If you want to sacrifice your skin for uh, for the sake of science and get bit by a mosquito in some urban area, go to Mobilize Green and sign up for the internship today. Uh, but uh, we have virtual as well, so there's no mosquitoes in the virtual <laughs> world. I figured you'd like put some in a jar and send them to them and say, hey, open this up in exactly. your room. Let's see how it happens. <laughs> you got to experience the full thing. But next year, they can do one year inside, and then next year, they can be outside. Good, good. I'm going to say this because the podcast is audio only. This conversation, I keep itching. Like I keep just like having <laughs> phantom itches all over my body. I am so susceptible. <laughs> I'm showing some cutter stick that I always have with me because you just never know when those mosquitoes are going to attack. And I do not like mosquitoes. It doesn't make me a great outdoor person who hates mosquitoes so much. Says the environmentalist. <laughs> I know. Right. Not a great who idea. has his, oh, probably not the best. Um, uh, that's fantastic. That is amazing. Okay, so our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about today, what is your more to tell, babe? I think there's more to tell by exploration exploring the outdoors exploring your environment whether you're in an urban area or in the outdoors that if you explore if you go out into nature whatever that is and however you define it and you see something different um there have been bring up new stuff uh psychological studies that when people are in the outdoors they're more relaxed they're more calm it has to do with the repetition of patterns of the leaves and of the environment but the environment creates a space to change. And so again, there's good change and there's bad change, but we can change ourselves from within by, you know, being in the environment. We can learn more from our religion, from our social interactions, and then we can take action um, on what we learn from ourselves, from the environment and the outdoors. Love that. Lave Kaminsky, thank you so much for being with us this week on Good Faith Weekly. If you want to know more about Lave's work, uh, you can reach out to him. We'll uh, put the links uh, in the podcast uh, description below.
if you've got a nonprofit, a conservation organization that uh, you need some help with, I'm certain Labe would uh, be able to talk to you, point you in the right direction, and you can reach out to him later on. Labe, thank you so much for being with us at Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. To our listeners, thank you so much for uh, tuning in once again. Uh, Until next time, we're together. Keep living good faith.